How's everybody doing? Good? Awesome. Thank you for coming out. Glad to have everybody. We will open with prayer, and then we will get started with an introduction to our introduction on the Trinity. Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful to be here, uh, to open your word, to open our hearts, and to learn about who you are, not only as Father, but as Son and Holy Spirit, uh, not merely for our salvation, but who you are in eternity. Uh, this is the mystery of salvation. This is the mystery of the Christian faith, and yet it is the truth, Lord. And so we want to just ask, Father, for this class, for the remainder of the class, that you would um, help us not simply to comprehend, because really there is no comprehending, but to experience, to to accept. I'm not sure what it is, but Lord, that we would come away with a conf- with a firm conviction of your identity, and 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 that we'd grow thereby, Lord. That we would deepen our fellowship and communion with you, Lord. Um, this is ultimately not about us filling our brains with information, but growing in discipleship and likeness to you. And so we lift ourselves to you, Father. Go before us. May our Holy Spirit open our hearts and minds and deliver us the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, the introduction to the introduction. Um, My intention in this class, much like our last class, is to recover a classical uh, doctrine of the Trinity, Um, as opposed to maybe a more modern conception or modern conceptions of the Trinity. As you guys know, um, I'm an apologist for the Christian tradition. Uh, I don't mean tradition in the sense that it might be used in a Roman Catholic sense, but tradition in the sense of um, the long, winding conversation the church has had about the Scriptures, our theological inheritance. And the simple reason, right, the, the, the why I find myself as an apologist for the Christian tradition is because we've thrown it out to our own detriment. I like to make the analogy to uh, the 60s. Barney, you need a paper? Two of them? Of course. Hi, Sally. How are you? So, yeah, uh, back, what was I talking about? So, um, apologists for the Christian tradition. And I like to make the analogy um, to the 60s, when culturally speaking, there was a decisive rejection of our past. Um, old customs, old traditions, old ways of life, etc., etc., were thrown out in favor of, or in the name of freedom and individuality, right? And most of us, as conservative types, um, we look back to that time and we mourn it as a kind of loss, right? Um, It may have brought about some good music and other things, but not necessarily maybe healthy for the 
inheritance of the nation moving forward. We're kind of rootless, right? There's not a common identity. There's not a common um, past that roots us together. And so it's kind of chaos. And so here's the point. Bringing that up is just to say, although we mourn that movement in our culture, we have kind of all but embraced it within the church. So we've thrown out denominations, we've thrown out ecclesial hierarchies, we've thrown out our theological heritage, kind of with the same fervor that a hippie did his suit and tie. Um, Some of that's for good reason. Some of the denominations, as it's clear now, have just gone way overboard um, in a bad sense. They've thrown out traditional doctrine, they've thrown out a right understanding of anthropology and human sexuality and so on and so forth, but doing that, it's brought some new forms and some new theological insights, some good and others not so good. But for the most part, and this is my opinion, it's led to a degradation rather than a renewal. We've opened ourselves up to the very thing the Apostle Paul warns about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 of that chapter. He says, no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful scheming. So he's saying growing up into Christ-likeness means also not being carried away by every wind of doctrine. And so it's my conviction that having thrown aside our theological heritage, we've imbibed, we've taken in many modern theological assumptions that have in turn distorted our understanding. And so our churches today are characterized not by a steady doctrinal history, but by, and tell me if you agree with this, faddishness and novelty. So whether it's a new business scheme pulled from the latest book or some historical critical movement drawn from the academy, we've absorbed these things uncritically. In other words, we're tossed tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. And as such, We've lost our identity. We're kind of no longer distinctly Christian, but we're just kind of a slightly more moral version of the world. And so I bring all this up simply to say that more than almost any doctrine, the Trinity has taken severe damage from this. Now, next week's class, when we start talking about the oneness of God, and then the following class, when we start talking about the threeness of God, I'll bring up how the Trinity has become distorted and we're really going to go to battle with some modern understandings and try and recover what we think is the biblical one. But preparing for this class, one of the first books I read was The Quest for the Trinity. Um, It's a book by Stephen Holmes and essentially it chronicles the development of the Trinity from its inception shortly after the apostolic period, to the church fathers, and on all throughout history to our modern time. And really the book makes the point that our modern understanding, and I quote, distorts the traditional understanding so badly that it's unrecognizable. So his contention isn't that we shouldn't transgress transgress, um, because it's tradition, right? But because the tradition was right, it was correct, and we were foolish to write it off so quickly. We've thrown it away. So the point I'm making that is in this class, what we're going to try to do is recover the classical conception, to go back um, and to hear what 
Augustine, with Gregory of Nazianzus, with Athanasius, with uh, Basil of Caesarea, with these men who were so crucial in founding, not founding, but articulating the doctrine of the Trinity actually had to say, and how I think a lot of our modern assumptions about what we think Trinity means um, are off base. Things like social Trinity, things like um, our social Trinitarianism, things like the eternal relations of authority and submission, so on and so forth. Um, so we're going to get into all that, and it's going to be really fun. But I just wanted to say off the, off the bat, that's what we're trying to do um, 30,000 feet, kind of wise there. So with that, we want to move to the meat of our introduction. And at the outset of our study, the first thing that we need to recognize is that the Trinity, and this is going to sound incredibly obvious, but the Trinity is a revealed doctrine, which is to say, unlike other doctrines, it's not accessible by reason. To say that it's revealed is to say that it's not accessible by human reason. So in our previous class, much of what we considered was accessible by human reason. If you can remember doctrines such as aseity, simplicity, and immutability um, are not unique to Christians alone, but equally agreed upon by philosophers and theologians from all the major religions. In other words, one does not need the Holy Scriptures to discover such knowledge about God. So take, for instance, Plato or Aristotle. They were crucial um, in the Greek um, development, Greek theology, I guess you could say, in articulating God as the unmoved mover. He's unchanging, right? And so they, by reason, got to this point and said, yeah, the Creator cannot change. But because they were not guided by the Scriptures, they ended up coming to radically different conclusions about what that means. And so we talked about that a little last time. The point is, you can get somewhere to that. With the Trinity, however, that is simply not possible. It does not belong to that category of theological inquiry. It is an entirely revealed doctrine. So in other words, if we are to know that God is Trinity, God must make it known to us. If we're to know that God is Trinity, God must make it known to us. And the reason this is so, the reason that the Trinity cannot be discovered by reason, is because, we might say, it is insider knowledge. The Trinity is insider knowledge. God's triune identity is not something, as we've said, that can be gleaned by observing nature or by studying cultural phenomena or by human introspection, because it belongs to the eternal and internal life of God. And as such, it's inaccessible to us. So, we might, by studying creation, say many things about God. He's powerful. He's wise. We might not necessarily be able to say that He's good because there's evil in the world. That might, that's something that Revelation has to tell us. But we might say that he's all sorts of other things. He has life in himself. We talked about that last time. But in all our search in creation, in our own lives, we're never going to discover and happen upon the knowledge that 
God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? That's just, it, it, it won't happen. And so, um, well, let's just take Jesus' own words as an example of this. Um, Luke chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. It says, at that very time, he, that's Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. And then he says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom, to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So consider first the closed circle of knowledge between the Father and the Son. No one, the passage says, knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son. So in other words, although creatures may have a generic knowledge of the divine nature, only God knows that He exists as Father and Son. And I think we should take that no one very expansively. Certainly no humans on their own could know that. But I think also angels as well. That even the seraphim who fly around God's throne, this is not common knowledge to them, but something that must be revealed. So the Son knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son, but they know each other in the Holy Spirit. So let's take this passage, Luke 10, and combine it with another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For whom among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So notice, again, we find a similar no one. Last time, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Now, no one has access to the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Here, a third, the Spirit of God, is added to the mix of exclusive knowledge between the Father and the Son. So the Father only knows the Son, the Son only knows the Father, and they know each other by bringing this passage into the mix, we might say, by the Holy Spirit. They know each other by the Holy Spirit who searches all things, even the depths of God. And interesting, too, that there's, the Son says in the Luke passage, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and then here in this passage, the Spirit searches all things. So, to sum up, only the Trinity knows the Trinity. And um, I think I'm belaboring the point, but this analogy, uh, an analogy might be helpful, that of uh, an artist and her work. So, in studying and contemplating the body of her work, there's a general knowledge to be had. We learn something about her through the themes of her art, the techniques and the material she uses, and et cetera, et cetera, but that's only going to get us so far, of course. Um, there is a far deeper interiority to her that's inaccessible through her work alone. That would require that hidden inwardness of a person. It's only revealed if they choose to reveal it. 
Same thing, right? I can gain a lot of knowledge about a person by just their appearance, by maybe seeing what they do and what they like. But there's a whole vast inward life that is unknowable unless they choose to reveal it, unless they choose to open themselves up. And so in much the same way, there's a general knowledge about God to be had, that God doesn't derive his life from a source outside of himself, that God does not change, that God's emotions are not varied, that we can gather through the work of creation, but beyond that lies things simply inaccessible to our reason. Namely, as we've been saying, the knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Barney. Mm-hmm. So in the Greek, the word is pneuma. In the Greek, the, the word for um, spirit is pneuma, and it can mean a whole lot of things. So it can mean ghosts, it can mean um, breath, it can mean air, it can mean spirit. So there's a, there's a whole range there. Yeah, and, and also with the English, ghost doesn't necessarily contain, or uh, it didn't have the connotations that it does now, right? Or we think ghost and we think like Casper or whatever. Yeah, so that's just a, a development in the English language, more or less. Yeah. So, if we're to know that God is Trinity, he must make it known to us. That's the point. Um, any questions about that before I move forward? Any comments? Anything that anyone would like to add? Okay, fairly straightforward. So we're going to build off that now. If we're to know the Trinity, the Trinity has to reveal himself to us. And that is precisely what he's done. Once upon a time, we did not know that God was Trinity, but then the Son was sent and the Spirit was poured out. Now, what I said was subtle in its significance, so it's important that we unpack that some more. The Trinity was revealed not in the words of the Old Testament and not even in the words of the New Testament, but in the sending of the Son in His incarnation and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity was revealed not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, but in these events in the incarnation and at Pentecost. So we're going to read a quote here from B.B. Warfield. He's a 19th or rather 20th century Princeton theologian, he says, oh, there, there's the heading, between the Testaments. He says, We cannot speak of the doctrine of the Trinity, therefore, if we study exactness of speech as revealed in the New Testament any more than we can speak of it as revealed in the Old Testament. Here's what he says. Listen to this. The Old Testament was written before its revelation. The New Testament after it. The revelation itself was made not in word, but in deed. It was made in the incarnation of God the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So what Warfield is saying is if you crack your Bible open and you find that one blank page between where the Old Testament ends at the book of Malachi and then where the New Testament begins with the book, the Gospel of Matthew, he says the revelation of the Trinity happened there. It's shadowy, it's like looked forward to in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, it's presupposed. 
we'll explain that a little bit more. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so he says the Old Testament um, was written before. The New Testament came after it. Therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity, rather than being revealed in words, right? Rather than being revealed in propositional form or by inward intuition of the apostles' minds, it was revealed in deed. It was revealed in events. It was revealed in salvation history. And at first glance, that might seem a little counterintuitive, um, wrong even, but I assure you it makes good sense. The doctrine of the Trinity, it's very important that we understand, is not directly proposed in the words of Scripture or presented to us in a formulated sense. Okay, here's the point. That is, it's not made known in verbal propositional form as other doctrines are. So you guys are well aware of this passage. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Moses um, asks God to see his glory. And God grants him his request and says, Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass beside. I'm going to pass in front of you. And as I do, I'm going to cover you with my hand. And you're going to see my glory, but only as from the backside. And as he passes, um, the passage says, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So here, in a formulated, verbal, propositional form, the perfect character of God is made known. And understanding it is a matter of word study, a matter of context, a matter of reading the Bible as a whole. Right. So let's say if we're going to take, okay, what does it mean to say that God is slow to anger? We would go to the particular Hebrew word, we try to figure out how it was used in the normal language, then we'd study it within the scripture, so on and so forth. It's a matter of parsing out the words. Now, the point is that the Trinity is not made known to us in this way. Nowhere in the Old Testament does one of the prophets say, thus says the Lord, I exist in three subsistent relations as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you don't find that. And really, you don't get anything close to that in the Old Testament. And so it is in the New Testament. Nowhere does the Apostle Paul say, like he does with other doctrines, now concerning the Trinity, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. He doesn't do that. So, Gilles Emery, a French theologian, he elaborates. He says, this manifestation of the Trinity is different from other forms of revelation. For example, the revelation that God makes simply by the interior inspiration of the mind of the prophets. So again, you know, God revealing something about himself to one of the prophets. It's this, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. It's something that happens in, on his inside. But he continues, because the revelation of the Trinity takes place in events manifested to human eyes, in the events of salvation, God the Trinity gives not merely something, but rather he gives himself. God the Father sends his Son and pours out his Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is revealed, but it's revealed in a much different way than other doctrines. And this is very important for us to understand. It's not that God just kind of leans over the bar of heaven and says, I exist as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I just wanted you to know that. That's not how it comes to us. So rather than information transmitted through the prophets and the apostles, the Trinity 
is revealed in the sending of the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to this a little bit later, but it's at least worth mentioning now in a certain sense. The apostles, they weren't even apostles yet, merely disciples following Christ. He's just another man to them. He's a prophet, he's exalted, but they don't necessarily know that he's God yet. This is beautifully revealed in the Gospel of John. John opens with the prologue, and it has this amazing declaration of Christ's divinity. But that's for the reader, not for the people in the story. And then you jump to the people in the story, and it's this long struggle with Jesus' identity. And it culminates after the resurrection when Thomas falls at Jesus' feet, worships him, and says, um, uh, my Lord, my God. He confesses him as Lord. And so it was a process only in dealing with the person of Jesus that then they began to say, we're dealing with someone who himself is God. So then they had to take their understanding of who God was and reformulate it. Now, somehow within God, there's Father and Son. And then all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's speaking of this Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Is it, a, is it God? Is it a spirit? Is it an it? Is it a he? What is it? And then Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon the church. And he is in the midst of the church. And as he's in the midst of the church, there's another reformulating process going on. And so Peter says, you have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And then he'll say just a little bit later, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Again, then now their idea of who God is is changing and developing even more. It's not like Jesus gave lectures and said, this is who I am. This is, it all happened in the events. And the church was left guided by the Spirit to make sense of it. So, um, so yes, not a verbal announcement or as an abstract idea, but in reality. So consider the apostles' words. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Um, we celebrated Trinitary, Trinity Sunday last year. Um, and this was the text we preached out of. It reads, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's two sendings, the sending of the son and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So in the fullness of time, God did not give us facts about himself. God did not give us information about himself, but he gave himself in the events of incarnation of the Incarnation and Pentecost. The Father sent forth His Son, born of a woman, and He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So, yes? That, that, I, I was hoping someone would ask that question because I searched long and hard to try and find out. You know, I mean... I, I would be hard-pressed to give an answer for myself. And I looked and looked and looked, and I could find really nothing on it, and, except for a few assertions. So I think some would say that, and I guess you could take two routes, right? You could say, one, the apostles were guided by the Holy Spirit. So whether they knew the fullness of what they were saying or not, it's what God meant them to write. And so maybe, you know, when Paul does a, a subtle move in his language, Maybe he didn't know the full significance of that, but the Holy Spirit did. And it's left for us to then discover and to see. That's one of them. The other one is to say, 
there was, and I think there's hints of this, you surely see it, that there's a really strong developed Trinitarian theology already in the Old Testament. And so you look at the Gospel of John. Certainly it comes later. And maybe John is writing to articulate this, to defend the Trinity against some um, attacks that were being made. But you look at John's Gospel, it's not like he's kind of shooting from the hip. It's really... um, clear, it's really consistent, and it is raining right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's those two. Now, the only, the only thing that kind of trips me up is why this information wasn't necessary, why there seems to be a, a gap in the knowledge. So if you say that the apostles had this firm grab, grasp on it, it seems somewhere along the line that information wasn't transmitted. Because then you get to men like Tertullian, these guys, where they're having to go back and they're saying, they're having to formulate the doctrine from the scriptures. Um, And so you could say a lot of reasons for why that is the case. I mean, the Apostle Paul was busy founding churches. He was doing all these other things. I don't think maybe necessarily articulating textbook theology was at the top of his list. Um, So that information might have not been passed along all the way. I, I don't know. I tend to lean on the side more that there is a strong understanding of what they were talking about with maybe a caveat to say, but of course the Holy Spirit could have been doing way more with their writings than they even expected. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great question. So, the point that we're making, and, and, and this is really the, the heart of this first lecture, is that the Trinity is revealed in salvation. The Trinity is revealed in our salvation. So Karl Ranner, a very influential uh, 20th century theologian, he put it this way. The Trinity is the mystery of salvation. Otherwise, it would have never been revealed. The Trinity is the mystery of salvation. Otherwise, it would have never been revealed. So the gospel our salvation, our redemption, our rescue, and the Trinity, in other words, are not two different things. I like his one theologian said, the gospel is Trinitarian and the Trinity is the gospel. Because again, God doesn't just redeem us from afar. He doesn't just speak the word and boom, it's done. He comes to us. It's the mystery of salvation, right? If if Theoretically, if God never saved us, we would never have this knowledge. But when he came to save us, he came himself. And as such, his true identity was revealed to us. So think for a moment the, um, there's a lot of ways to understand salvation. There's a lot of angles, right? You can say, you can look at it from the angel, angle of redemption. You can look at it through reconciliation, through a defeat of the devil, so on and so forth. But I think the, the, the most fundamental way to look at salvation, according to the scriptures, is that of adoption. We are adopted into God's family. That's the way our salvation looks. Now, the question we'd ask is, well, why? Why does our salvation have this character and not some other character to it? Well, we'd say because God in his nature, in his being, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's this familial relation between a father and a son in the very being of God. And so when God comes to save us, 
The Father sends His Son, and what does the Son do? By His sacrifice, He brings us into the family of God. Jesus, uh, Hebrews often says, is our elder brother. Um, uh, The passage in Romans 8, it's falling off the top of my head, so let me read it for you. The passage in Romans 8, speaking of our sanctification, it says... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to to be conformed into the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Son is the firstborn among many brethren. We're conformed, we're transformed into the image of the Son. We're adopted, and we become sons and daughters of God. And the Holy Spirit comes to us. Go back to our our Galatians 4 passage. The Spirit of our Son, the, the Spirit of His Son, is sent into our hearts that we might cry, Abba, Father. That's why our salvation looks like it does, because God himself is Father, Son, and between the Father and Son is the Holy Spirit. So, any questions there? Okay, but that's the heart of it. We don't want to ever leave that. We, don't, we, we want to always keep the gospel and the Trinity together. And here's the reason. When we do so, we keep the doctrine of the Trinity from becoming dry and scholastic, a mere doctrine among other doctrines. And let's be honest here, right? Trinitarian doctrine, in large part, is treated that way. Um, It's a matter of mental obedience. It's a divine math problem that needs to be solved and synthesized into a system. Um, And the reason that we begin to treat it that way is it because is because it becomes something that's revealed for its own sake. Does that make sense? It's something that it's revealed for its own sake. So, you know, we would say, like, we have to believe the Trinity. But what does it mean? I don't know. We have to believe the Trinity. What is it there for? I don't know. It's just there kind of to keep us outside of being a cult. We have to confess that. But practically, it doesn't have a lot of influence in our lives. We don't, you know, other than... The, the benediction, the praise that I give at the end, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's like, what is it really, where does it all fit together? And the reason is because it becomes divorced from the gospel, and it starts to get treated as just, it's just something God told us because he wanted to tell us. And so again, we um, already looked at Carl Ranner, but he's got um, another quote here, and he's lamenting this overly rationalistic approach. He says, it is as though the, this mystery has been revealed for its own sake, and that even after it has been made known to us, it remains a reality locked within itself. We make statements about it, but as a reality, it has nothing to do with us at all. Yes? Any, any like, okay, that accords with my experience, right? That's kind of how it feels. So in other words... Ranner is saying that because we've come to treat the Trinity like a cognitive riddle, something that needs to be cracked, we've divested it of its meaning. It is as though this mystery, he says, has been revealed for its own sake. God has revealed that he's a Trinity, but for what reason and purpose? We don't know, right? He might as well have said that I'm blue or I'm whatever. It's like, it's okay, thanks for the information, but what do we do with that? And so therefore, 
And therefore, though we make statements about the Trinity, though we put our doctrinal systems together, in the end, it has nothing to do with us. Again, one more ranner, and then we're going to leave him for the rest of this series. It says, despite the orthodox confession of the Trinity, Christians are, in their practical life, almost mere monotheists. We should be willing to admit that, should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature would remain unchanged. Again, he's saying that these are consequences of splitting the gospel, the Trinity and the gospel from one another. And so then finally, having consented to this rationalist approach, our speech about the Trinity um, is reduced to fitting together random biblical texts. So we put passages about God's oneness on this side of the equation, and then we put passages about God's plurality on the other side of the equation, and then we add it up all, all together, and then like magic, there it is, right? There's the Trinity. And again, that's not necessarily the worst thing, because it helps. It helps it can show us like, okay, the Scripture affirms both, and we kind of just have to hover there in the middle. But that's all it can do. It misses the richness. It misses the beauty. It misses all the, the wonder of what it means to confess that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just, revert, it's just reduced to, okay, I see it. It's there. I have to believe it. And, 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 and that approach is kind of what's led to the, the downgrade of Trinitarian theology. It's like, well, okay, we believe it, but it doesn't have anything to say, so let's just move on and go to bigger and better things. So we're trying to chart a different course, and, and we'll see that throughout the rest of this. And so if it's not reduced in that way, it's the other way it's reduced is just to say, does it make sense? What happens is um, we're left trying to make statements about threes and ones and about how they fit together. So I remember a few years back, uh, I, I heard a lecture on the Trinity, and I went in really excited about it, very excited about it, but left rather disappointed. I didn't really know why at the time, but the whole lecture consisted of metaphors and images about how three can be one, and the Penrose Triangle was one of them. You know, it's just like this, it's like there it is, like three and one, there's, you know, the Trinity. And it was, it was good, but... And again, let me say, there's nothing wrong with trying to conceptualize the triunity. There's nothing wrong with trying to say, hey, here's how it can make sense. It's only that it makes it more about mental gymnastics, and in my mind, altogether misses the point. It seems that the doctrine is about intellectual coherence, us trying to give answers about how these two can be confessed simultaneously, and it's less about the mystery of salvation. So a theologian um, that I've drawn heavily from in this series, he says, there is no sure way to strip the doctrine of the Trinity of all its significance and desiccate most of its interests than to treat it as a transferal of a set of facts about God that were revealed that were revealed for their sake as mere information. And so thus in the end, the only way to reconnect, or the only way to avoid this pitfall rather, is to reconnect the Trinity and the gospel. It's to realize that it's part of the mystery of salvation. So any questions there before we move to our next area? Liz, yes. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the paradoxes about it all. It's like even though if we can't necessarily articulate a doctrine of the Trinity for ourselves, if you're a believer, even in the most mundane thing you do, as in saying grace before a meal, it's a Trinitarian act. You're praying to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. We have access to Him through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians 2.18. And so... And, and another thing to add to that, and lest we drift too far one way, is to say, you know, um, the Trinity, the revelation of the Trinity happened indeed. Those deeds were also accompanied by words. The apostles later went on to say, now here's how you should understand this. So it's not just like, God, it happened, and then it's just, it's just left there. It's happened, and then it's interpreted. The deeds are interpreted for us, and they're made sense for us, so that now... We might have some experience of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but without the Scriptures, of course, it would just be, you know, who knows what it would turn into. So, yeah, there's both ends of that. Lord, did you have something? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. A hundred percent. Yes, and. I'm I'm kind of regretting it now. I had a, a a a big lecture on the Trinity in the Old Testament that just to try and fit all this together that I I I had to take it out um, just because there's so much to be said here and and that what you're saying there, Laurel, was one of the things to me that was most fascinating was because although there are these very suggestive things in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God being one of them. Proverbs 8, the wisdom of God being another one, the name of God almost like acting on its own, um, the name of God saving people, the angel of the Lord, all these different, like you're thinking like, okay, something is going on here. But then when you look at, as it's developed in the rabbis, and especially between the intertestamental period, between um, the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there's all this interesting speculation about God's identity, about what's going on. And although it's interesting what they say, it doesn't get anything quite close to what's revealed in the New Testament. And we'll clarify this a little bit later on. So I had a whole long thing about Proverbs 8 and wisdom. 
because their wisdom is uh, said to be like a, a, uh, a co-worker alongside God. Wisdom says that she was established with God in the beginning. And it's this very exalted language about wisdom. And now then you look at what they were saying about that, and they start to, they start to say, you know, they, also, they start to not just personify wisdom, but almost turn wisdom into a person, such that some scholars in the early 1900s said that this was a foreign deity brought into the Israelite religion, and, you know, they're trying to make sense of it, and it's just, it's bonkers what they're saying. Um, and there's these interesting trajectories, but they fall wildly short of a true articulation of the Son and the Spirit. And we'll come back to that. We'll circle back around, and, and you tell me if it answers your question. Do you have something? Right. Yeah, and so let's let's get to it. Let's just skip ahead. Um, let's see, BB Warfield. Okay, so let's talk about the Old Testament and the Trinity. Take a little non chronological tour here. Um, so, like we said, well, let's just read his. He says the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not there before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, sorry, much of what is in it, but was only dimly or not even at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. So I think that's what we're trying to get at, right? Is that similar to what you're saying, Laurel? Is that it's there, and to the Old Testament believers, it's certainly suggestive, but it's, they were strictly monotheists. So though they might have said something interesting about the Spirit of God, it was nothing close to three persons within the divinity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but when the New Testament comes, a whole new light is shed upon the Old Testament. And with that new light, all these interesting insights come forth. And they see what's been there all along. They just weren't able to see it before in its clarity. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and that's some of the things even that we miss in the English translation. Um, because in the Hebrew... It, it's just that one word, and sometimes it does. It is wind, breath, or whatever. And and so, yeah, I, I, I agree with what everything has been said there. So, there it is, the Old Testament. So, now let's circle back around. Where were we? Oh, yeah, economy. So, This principle that the Trinity is revealed in our salvation is the cornerstone of all Trinitarian theology. Implicit, buried beneath that principle, is the truth that there's a consistency between God's being in eternity and His actions 
in time. And that truth, that there is a consistency between God's essence, God's nature, and God's acts, and God's deeds, it enables us to say, that's what enables us, rather, to say anything meaningful about the Trinity whatsoever. So let me put it in the form of a question. Is the incarnation of the Son and the descent of the Spirit a revelation of the inner and eternal life of God? Yes or no? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful. Is the incarnation of the Son and the descent of the Spirit a revelation of the inner and eternal life of God? Yes or no? Right, so, okay, so here's our answer to that question, because we believe it to be the Scripture's answer to that question, is an affirmative yes. It is possible that God could theoretically redeem us without necessarily revealing His inner and eternal life to us, right? So that, that we could have a form of salvation without God necessarily communicating who He is in the process. And so in that case, God would be the mysterious origin of our redemption and somewhat of an unknown power behind it. So we'd be thankful, but we would have nothing. It would be an anonymous gift, essentially. We would know nothing about the giver. And so the fact that the Son comes and the Spirit comes is kind of non-essential. We, maybe, maybe there's three in God, but we don't really know. And though that's possible, it seems to run counter to the biblical testimony. Exodus chapter 15, verse 12, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He has become my salvation. So undoubtedly, it's more proper to hold God's identity and His acts in union with one another. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, You are good and do good. There's a consistency. God is good in His being and His nature, and therefore what He does, His acts are good. Uh, one theologian, I like the way he put it, he says, riffing on this, you are Trinity and do Trinitarian things. Because God is fundamentally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he comes among us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. Right, yeah, and that would be that would to take a, a, a strong stance on a lack of consistency between God's beings and his God's being and his act. That'd be a very strong one. I think what other people would say is something like, Okay, these three divine beings come among us, right? Or not beings, that's that's heretical. Three divine persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we could say, In God there's there's three, but we don't know what. The, you know, in God, there, there's, a, there's a one who sends, and there's one who's sent, and then there's another one. You know, we could say something like that, but we would just have to stay quiet about everything else. And so really, at this point, we would just stop our lecture on the Trinity, our series, and we'd just say, okay, it's a mystery. There's three, and we don't know anything else to say. That's if there's not any consistency, but we say there is a consistency. And what we're trying to say is that who God is for us in salvation is not something different from who he is in eternity. They are one and the same. So the distinction that we're trying to make, and you guys will have these definitions on your paper there, 
is what the church fathers called um, economy and theology. It's what they called the economy and the theo- and, and theology. Economy comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which means administration or stewardship. Um, oiko, if that's how you pronounce it, means something like house or household, and nomia means law. Um, and so it refers to kind of a stewardship or administration over a household. And in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 1, it refers to God's unfolding plan and salvation. Ephesians 1 chapter, or Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 read, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration, oikonomia, suitable for the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. So, thus, in early theological terminology, the oikonomia, or the economy, became shorthand to refer to God's actions within time and space for the salvation of his creatures. Does that make sense? The economy? The economy refers to God's actions in salvation history. So alongside the economy was put another term, theology. And as the name indicates, theology refers to God's being in itself, as he is in eternity. So we have two things here, God's action in salvation history and God's being in eternity, economy and theology. And so it was the church father's claim that there is no theology in the scriptures, at least in the strong sense of the term. And I think that bears out. There's no theology in the scriptures in that sense, right? So you don't find almost anywhere in the scripture where it removes God from his actions and begins to talk abstractly about God's divine nature, right? Like you'd find maybe in some of the Greek philosophers or something along those lines, right? It's, it's always connected to what God is doing in salvation history. I think maybe one of the only exceptions is where God says, I am that I am. Maybe a few passages in um, Isaiah. So there's no strict theology in that sense. Rather, um, all we know about God's being comes from all that we can glean um, about it through his works, right? In other words, all theology is rooted in the economy. All we know about God as he is in himself comes from God's actions among us. So, does that make sense before I keep going on, that connection there? Yes, Mike. Second of the Ten Commandments, the idols. How? How so? Okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, in that sense. Yeah, okay, so I agree with that. Let me clarify a little bit. What, what I mean by theology in that sense is not necessarily um, maybe God's attributes in, in, that, in that sense, but God's, uh, God's nature. In the, that's hard, that's because that doesn't get the distinction right, but uh, we're talking about God's being in the sense of, you know, it, it talks about God as, you know, it, it, the scriptures will never say that, or, or don't say that, well, take the Trinity, for instance, right? There's no discussion of the Trinity. All we can glean about it is from God's acts. So yeah, though, though he does talk about his attributes, I guess I'm referring to it as his, I can't find the right terminology to try what I'm saying, but I think you're 
getting what I'm getting at, more or less? Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, all our knowledge about who God is in himself necessarily comes from his words and deeds within the human sphere. And again, that seems like, again, a, a rather elementary observation to make, but it's an important one because, as we've said, it sets the stage for all further Trinitarian reflection. So Fred Sanders, he says, What is required for the success of Trinitarian theology is the conviction that salvation history is an economy not only of redemption, but also of divine self-revelation, in which God makes himself known in a unique way, a unique and direct way. So all we're trying to say here is that God's acts in history are consistent with his being in eternity. Or you might formulate it another way and say that God's being is the ground of his actions. You are Trinity, therefore you do Trinitarian things. And so, God's actions in history are a reliable and trustworthy guide to lead us into a modest knowledge about God's inner life. Because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he manifests himself among us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because he has manifested himself among us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to the knowledge that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity. Right? It's not that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here on earth, but then three other things in heaven. That's all we're trying to say. It's not that God is, you know, um, three here and then three something else over there. There's a consistency. What you get in his actions, is who he is in eternity. Does that make sense? I want to make sure I'm clearing up any confusion there, because I don't. I feel like I didn't explain that as well as I, I would have liked. Yes? That makes sense. Okay. I'm trusting you. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser, he puts it this way. We'll let him explain it to us. He says, because the way God is in the economy, salvation history, corresponds to the way God is in himself, we may conclude that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are merely continuing in history a communicative activity that, they char- that characterizes their perfect life together. Hence, this triune dialogue in history corresponds to the conversation God is in himself. So maybe we could use an analogy that's pretty rough and ready, but it, it helps. Think of three fa- friends in just rapt conversation. They're... they're, they're just blabbering on and on, and the conversation's engrossing. And they go from the restaurant to the coffee shop, and they go back home, but the conversation is never broken. They're changing context, they're going from place to place, but the conversation remains the same and is carried on through each place they go. Now, in a very distant sense, we can say that's kind of how God is when he comes to earth, right? The son comes to us, and his conversation with the father is not broken. The life that he lived in eternity is not something different than the life he lives here on earth. That relationship he has to the Father is carried on in the Holy Spirit. Um, And and this is where the disciples have these interesting glimpses about God's identity because Jesus comes and he doesn't say, here's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He just lives the life he's always been living in eternity and the disciples start to pick up on it. They start to realize what's going on. So the conversation that happened in eternity comes to earth, but it's fundamentally not changed. It's the same conversation. Does that make sense? God's being doesn't change. Right. So, um, 
Yeah, what we, what we get in the economy is what we have in theology. Um, God's being in, his, in, in, uh, in eternity is the same as his acts in history. So, and we'll close with this. Um, I didn't add that one. So, the question is, uh, now, this helps us make sense of how the Bible is in the Trinity. And I find this one really illuminating and helpful. As we've said, the Trinity is not revealed in propositional form or precise doctrinal formulation, um, on paper, that is. Rather, the Trinity in the Scriptures is more implicit than explicit. It's more overheard than heard. And so why is this the case? Because, as we said earlier, the Trinity is the mystery of salvation. David Bentley Hart, he says, it's already up there, in early Christian thought, the Trinity was gradually apprehended as the mystery truly revealed in God's saving action and was not a metaphysical secret imparted to the church. Hart is saying that the Trinity was given to us not in the theology textbook, but in the very act of our salvation. And that has profound implications for how we ought to expect to find the Trinity within the Scripture. So taking this to account, one theologian, Robert Jensen, says, if the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Scriptures, it may be there as a feature of the narration, indeed of the narrating. So what he means to say is that the Trinity is not an object in the Scripture. There's nowhere where Paul says, all right, let me sit you down and tell you. Rather, it is a part of the Scripture as its narration. It's there as the stories, the story that the Scripture tells. Okay, so, so hold that thought, and let me read this by Charles Gore. He explains it perfectly. He says, It is important to notice that there is no moment when, Christ, when Jesus Christ express, expressly reveals this doctrine. It was overheard rather than heard. It was simply that in the gradual process of intercourse with him, his disciples came to recognize Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as included in their deepening and enlarging thought enlarging, and enlarging thought of God. So that phrase, overheard rather than heard, puts it best, in my opinion. Again, Jesus does not give us lectures on the Trinity. He simply carries out that eternal conversation with the Father in the Spirit and rather than telling us directly, he allows us to eavesdrop on the conversation. And he invites us into it even. And so, that means that when it comes to um, formulating a doctrine of the Trinity, some assembly is required. Okay, again, there's not a place where it just says, here's everything you need to know. Because the Trinity is revealed in this manner, indeed, rather than word presupposed rather than explained, it requires us to put the pieces together, so to speak. There is not one text that settles the matter, um, nowhere that it's laid out in precise doctrinal formulation. Rather, it's something we gain apprehension of only by considering the entirety of Scripture together. The Trinity is not in the Scriptures in that sense, but the very story the Scriptures tell. So you have to read between the lines a little bit, right? You have to see the interconnecting patterns. You have to get a feel for the whole Scriptures themselves. And this rules out, as a result, a proof-texting approach, otherwise known as biblicism. 
it's simply impossible to construct an adequate doctrine of the Trinity by isolating verses and employing them at will. Because, as we're going to see throughout this class, certain texts do not easily agree, at least on the surface. Their straightforward literal sense would undermine sound doctrine. What do we do when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I? What do we do when there are certain passages that seem to indicate possibly the Son being of lesser uh, uh, glory and status than the Father? There's a certain way we have to read the Scripture to get at the truth. And in fact, if you go back to the history of Trinitarian development, the, the heretics were the proof texters. Arius, the church's first great theologian who said that the Son is not eternal, who's not one with God, but a created being, although the, create, the most glorious created being, he had a bunch of verses to point to, a whole lot of verses to point to, but he didn't read them in relation to the entire Scripture. All the heretics read the same Bible that we do. It's just a matter of how you're reading it. And so to see the Trinity, we have to understand how it's revealed in salvation. It's not an object that it just, here it is. We have to take a step back and take a, a much more thoughtful and diligent approach. And that's why in this class, we're going to inch along every way we go. We're not going to presuppose anything other than the divinity of the Son and Spirit along with the Father. Um, so Herman Bavinck explains, I, li I like the way he says this here, Scripture is neither a book of statutes nor a dogmatic textbook, but the foundational source of theology. As the Word of God, not only its exact words, but also the inferences le legitimately drawn from it have binding authority. So he says we can't just point to the Word and say there it is, but read deeper the inferences, reading between the lines, putting the assembly together. So while this is certainly the harder route and the more taxing route, this approach to the Scripture is the only one that yields a proper Trinitarian understanding. So more on that later. And here's where I get to the Old Testament, but we've already covered that. Um, so now just by way of recap, I want to cover what we're going and then launch into a little bit of next week. As you have on your papers before you, it's a revealed doctrine, meaning we can't access it by reason. God has to show us, but he has shown us. How has he shown us? In the sending of the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? That it's a doctrine revealed like any, not revealed like any other doctrine. Not on paper, but in history. The apostles would later then help us to understand it. Them helped by the Holy Spirit. That brings us to the point that we made where the Trinity is intimately connected with the gospel, and we can't separate those two. And that's really the only thing I wanted to leave you with in this class is that um, in all our reflection, Trinity and the gospel go together, and that's what keeps us close to the heart of God as revealed in the scriptures and not just treating the Trinity as some sort of you know, mental problem to solve. And then that leads to what we just talked about, um, theology, economy, so on and so forth. Um, any questions about what we've covered? <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting these looks. Um, okay. I'm taking that as uh, affirmative. We're good. And so next week what we're going to do is we're going to move to talk about um, the oneness of God, um, the, 
the uniqueness of God's being, and um, we'll come a little bit upon what the three are. Anyway, I'm really excited for it. We're going to talk a lot about social Trinitarianism, a, um, a very pervasive misunderstanding of the Trinity that we'll kind of take some time to deal with, and then we'll kind of formulate that up. And then the week after that, we're going to jump into the three persons, and we're going to talk about what are persons, why do we use the term person, it's not a biblical term, neither is Trinity for that matter, and get into all these interesting conversations. So, um, yeah, uh, keep this in mind because we're going to be going back throughout it. So, with that, I want to ask one more time, any questions? If not, we'll wrap it up. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you that in the fullness of time, you did not give us facts about yourself. You did not redeem us from afar, but you yourself came in the person of your Son and in the person of your Holy Spirit. And in coming to us, you gave us this incredibly precious knowledge about who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are not a solitary God, not a God who exists to himself, but a God who is fundamentally relational, and fundamentally outgoing life. And for this, Lord, we're just so grateful. And um, we pray, Father, that for the rest of this class, you would help us to understand. You would help us to, um, Lord, just promote good dialogue here. Um, We want to seek the truth and nothing but the truth. And, Father, where I may be wrong, where any of us might be wrong, help us to come to the truth. That's what we seek, Lord. Um, So we give you all the praise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.